Hey everyone, welcome to episode 64 of the Ginger and the Beard podcast. I'm AJ, aka the Ginger. And I'm Reese, aka the Beard. And on this week's show, we're joined by Jeff Bloom, founder and maltster of Murphy and Rude Malting in Charlottesville, Virginia. How's it going, Jeff? It's going, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. We're, we're so happy to have you on. We, we're on a tear right now with guest episodes, and uh, we're stoked that Kevin from Random Row put us in touch. Kevin really gave us the hookup, man, um, and we're excited to learn more about local malt. So just to dive right in, man, can you tell us a little bit about Murphy and Rude? A little bit about Murphy and Rude. So we, uh, we opened our doors early 2018. Uh, I was conceptualized mainly in my basement uh, in 2013. Uh, I had had a very long conversation about um, distilling, actually, with a buddy of mine. I was pitching a property to him. He At the time, I thought he was opening a distillery, and he decided not to. And um, upon finding out why, um, we really started moving towards the conversation, moved towards the supply chain and the fact that, um, you know, he found many more opportunities within the supply chain area of distilling and the fact that, you know, he perhaps didn't have the chops to, to open a distillery at the time. And, um, you know, I went home after those few beers, I went digging around and just trying to figure out more about the Virginia supply, supply chain and assuming that at the time, you know, there was probably 125 craft breweries in Virginia and, um, you know, assuming that there was maybe five, 10 maltsters <laughs> around Virginia and uh, came to find out that there really were none and it was an entirely untapped supply chain. And so um, I was shocked, uh, you know, all the, the volume at the pace that craft beer was, was expanding at the time. I was just really surprised at the fact that everybody was still using the same stuff. Um, and the curiosity got the best of me. I kind of I dug into the agriculture, which is really what um, what hooked me into this uh, this line of work, and really finding out more about uh, the farming of small grains, the variety selection, the the specs, and the quality that demanded um, that malting quality demanded. And and here we are. So you know, I maybe two months later, I found myself in my basement with a 150 pound batch size malt house with a newborn wondering why I was turning grain at three in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just, it turned into an obsession, um, mostly around how we could localize the supply chain around here. Um, agronomics had really picked up, uh, through the work of Virginia tech and their, their small grain breeding program. Uh, not only them, but NC state, Penn state, Michigan state, Ohio state, Cornell. And so we were bringing over varieties of two row because at the time we were just really malting six row thoroughbred and it was kind of a um, take it or leave it type scenario. And all of a sudden we were having uh, our first two row malting variety endeavor um, passing through test plots and successfully. And even though that variety didn't end up working out in the end, um, we're sitting here now with four malting quality varieties that can grow in Virginia. We've got the first Virginia Tech bred two row malting quality barley bred for Virginia going into foundation seed this year. I mean, this is major, major progress over the last five years. And so 
um, really it turned the ability to diversify your supply chain within craft beer in Virginia completely on its um, completely on its head, and and the the opportunities and the potential is endless here, and I couldn't be happier to be a part of it. This, okay, so you threw a lot of information at us just now. I want to real quick because we had like a setup of questions, but like I, I want to ask real <laughs> quick. So like Virginia's up and coming, and it feels like you're you're helping to drive that. Is there another state out there that like you guys are striving to like be more like them? You know, reach that kind of economic standpoint. The agronomics you mentioned. I'm not really 100 percent sure what that is. Um, is there, is there a state that you're just trying to, you know, not really mimic, but, you know, reach that kind of end goal? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say states like Colorado, states like, um, like California, for instance, that are really prioritizing, uh, the agriculture within the boundaries of their state, um, that they are then leveraging to really, differentiate and diversify their own craft beer market. And so um, I think as a mid-Atlantic state, you know, five years ago, people would say, this is not really a grain growing region. This is, you guys can make as much beer as you want, but you're going to have to find your ingredients elsewhere. And that's just not the case anymore. And so I, you know, I do hope that Virginia along, you know, with North Carolina and others, I think, um, are the, you know, the craft beer scene and the craft beer, uh, footprint is there. We just have to, um, turn it into really thinking about more where our beer is made, um, and, and, you know, what's going into it. Yeah. I think you, you know, a, a great point there is it just really seems like Virginia is just like kind of the whole like craft beer market's just kind of like exploding right now. And it's amazing. I live in downtown Leesburg and in walking distance from my house, I have, you know, between five and 10 different breweries that I can walk to. Some of them actually have your have your uh, malt there. Crooked Run being, you know, one of them yeah. uh, that really just comes to my mind because you know I love that place. But uh, yeah, so I think I think what, you know, the fact that you you saw an opportunity and you just kind of pounced on it and it just sounded like uh I don't know. Um, I want I want to ask why, you know, why did you switch out of, you know, corporate um, development, which, you know, AJ did some research and, and, you know, we kind of found that out. We were curious, like, why, you know, why did you want to switch to to beer? No, Except it's a, it's, a, it's a very fair question. I mean, I I very much enjoyed that paycheck. I mean, I was, uh, you know, it crossed my decade year of um, government contract, and I was in a corporate growth uh, division within a, a pretty quickly expanding uh, government contracting company. And really where the transition came from is that being in corporate growth, you know, I, I was essentially a, a bid, a capture and bid management um, manager. And so we would, we would chase government contracts. I was chasing government contracts for a living. And um, you know, unbeknownst to, to many people, those winning those contracts can take years. I mean, positioning yourself and defining value and um, differentiating and coming up with solutions that match the problem and, um, you know, 
adapting to the uh, the needed environment from the client um, positioned me pretty well to break into a newer market here in Virginia. I mean, like I said, going back, thinking that there were so many uh, suppliers feeding this booming craft beverage industry in Virginia, and there was nobody, um, was utterly shocking to me from a, a you know, a, a bid and capture perspective where I'm, you know, I've spent years going through opportunities of, do we have a potential, you know, do we have the potential to win this work? And um, there was a, you know, you, you wait for an opening uh, and that was my opening. Um, and so I, I started teaching myself how to do this and, um, you know, very closely, I certainly became a member and very closely followed the craft, uh, the craft maltsters guild and you know dave thomas put out the craft monsters handbook which was um incredibly useful to me in teaching myself how to literally watch grain grow for a living uh and figuring out what to do right and what to do wrong and you know how to how to dial in equipment and what mattered and maybe was a little bit more forgiving uh and so that whole piece of kind of the corporate background and realizing what it really took to make a business sustainable, but then also to stand on your own is what um, led me to think that I could maybe stand on my own with Murphy and Rude Malting. And you probably like beer a little bit too, right? Yeah, I, 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 I do. Uh, it, it was funny. I, you know, very early on with when we first opened the malt house NPR, I, I was lucky enough to to be focused on um, with NPR and <laughs> the host had, I, I guess, misheard me um, saying that, you know, I was not very interested in beer in college, but now I am, you know, in my, my afterlife. And I think I got 50 texts from my college <laughs> guys going like, who did you lie to in this interview? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed my, I enjoyed my beer. You know, it wasn't a lot of craft beer, I'll be honest. I mean, I I like to brag that my first craft beer was um, a Sammy Smith nut brown ale. Cool. Unfortunately, that was before that was before college, and so uh, that still wet the whistle in terms of what the difference in um, you know high quality crafted uh, beer can offer outside of you know your typical. Uh, your typical pounded beer in college. And so I did have a taste for it. I, I, I knew that there was potential with the craft beer movement. I mean, obviously I came into this um, long after craft beer had truly been established, not only as like a, as a uh, demographic and not so much a trend, but um, you know, I think we, I knew we had something to lend to the industry here. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I can only hope I'm delivering on it. Well, you know, yeah. from uh, from tasting experience, it seems like something's going right. You know, the beers definitely taste good out here. Um, Crooked Run beer and uh, a lot of the others. Bear Chase, I'm actually wearing one of their hoodies right now. I see you're you got Bear Chase on oh. your list. Dirt Farm, those are two favorites for my wife and I. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just kind of it sounds like you know you had a skill set. Um, that had been trained up uh, that allowed you to seek opportunities and, and, you know, take action on those opportunities. And 
you know, you found an opportunity here, you are taking action on it. And it sounds like it's going very well for you. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing the best we can. I mean, I, you know, it was, uh, it was terrifying during COVID, of course. I mean, I took the same 60% revenue cliff jump that everybody else did. Um, and so it was, it was scary. I mean, I, I have to say if, I mean, we rescue money during COVID helped us. I mean, it kept us, uh, it kept us alive. I mean, we have, I, at, at the time I had one employee, um, I was able to keep him on because of all of that. And then, um, we were able to inch back our revenue solely enough. I mean, I went into this mindset of just beat the previous month, uh, and we crawled back out of the, out of the slip and slide there. And so we were able to build things back to the point where they were before we were able to bring on another full-time employee. And, you know, it has really helped me you know, be here in a, you know, at Wheatland and spend time here as opposed to um, having to be tethered to the malt house and really sell and market the stuff that we're doing there um, as opposed to um, being locked down there. And so I've got Christian and Jason who are um, immensely important and vital to our, our operation there. And it lets me kind of go on the road a little bit more and really speak about the potential that we, that we're, we're offering here. Yeah, I feel like COVID, obviously, it, it had a terrible impact on all kinds of local businesses. But one thing it did do, it seems like at least around here, and I'm in Hampton Roads, is that people turned their attention, you know, as much as they could to supporting the local guys. You know, the first place that I went out to eat after COVID hit and was comfortable doing so was the pizza shop that's like a mile from my house, right? Like, I was like, who can I give my money to that it actually makes a good impact? Right. Um, and one of the things that we've been discovering more and more about as we talk to, you know, maltsters and hop farmers and things like that is is the supply chain, as you mentioned it, and how it supports local people. You know, if you go and buy a Budweiser or you go and buy, you know, whatever else, you're supporting who knows, right? Which kind of multi multinational conglomerates. But like, if you support your local breweries, you know, you mentioned some near you, Reese, you've got Commonwealth here, who's here in Virginia Beach, Random Rose there in Charlottesville. If you buy from these folks, you're supporting your malt house, you're supporting the farmers that you you get your, your grain from. And then in most cases, the spent grains from these breweries are going to other farmers to supply their, their livestock and things like that. So that's one thing that we've been really harping on, um, you know, over the last few months of like, when people say su support small beer, uh, breweries, craft breweries, there's the that's the impact, right? And it kind of is mind blowing to hear you say that before you know you started up with Murphy and Rude that there wasn't much of a supply chain in Virginia um, because, like Reese said, I mean, it's weird for me personally because I've only been into craft beer for like I don't know three or four years, like you know a little heavier than what I used to be. But the supply around here is like almost endless. Like there's so many breweries here in Hampton Roads and in Northern Virginia that it's hard to believe that the, you know, the suppliers are far and few between. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. And, and a, a good a, another kind of juxtaposition to all this is, you know, during COVID, some of the big you know, multinational malt houses were cutting their barley contracts. I mean, they were seeing lulls in brewery production. And they had promises made to farmers to, you know, take the grain that they had planted. Um, and they were saying, we're going to only be able to take 50% of that, that contracted acreage. And so um, there is an immediate 
downstream effect of what's happening, you know, in the immediate real world. I mean, I, I, I've said for a, a, you know a couple of years now. I mean, it, I certainly felt it more as I were as we were growing here. But if there was a bad weather weekend in Virginia, my sales would go down, yeah. and that wasn't because they didn't do well that weekend, uh, except that it was, and the fact that they had too much beer left over, they couldn't empty a bright take in the kegs because there was too many kegs in the cold room. And so they couldn't brew a second beer to put in a fermenter because there was no bright tank to put it into. And so if you think about it at that, you know, molecular level of what you do on the weekend results in sales for the malt house two weeks later, uh, it kind of brings you full circle into what a localized supply chain actually is. I mean, these are these moves are affecting people, but they're in your state and they're your, you know, you're, they're your fellow citizens. Yeah. And the fact that I can keep our ag dollars within Virginia and keep, um, you know, our grain assessment taxes within Virginia, um, that all goes to feed Virginia. And so it, it, it is utterly shocking how quickly we feel. I know exactly how our brewers are doing because, um, you know, I, I certainly know when they're doing well because I'm, I'm seeing orders from them and I, I certainly need to check in when I, when I haven't. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and then we were looking at your website before we hopped on and I love some of the uh, farmer spotlights that you guys do in those videos. Um, and I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering the name of those right now, but uh, yeah, Dan, it's pretty Dan, cool to, I think Dan Brand was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was it. It was the older yep. gentleman um, yep. with the plaid shirt Anyways, it was just really cool to watch him. He's in, I guess he's in uh, Christiansburg, right? And I went to school yes. in Radford. So I was like, man, I've probably driven past his farm. Like who knows how many times, no, I um, but that's, yeah, it's, it's super cool, man. And I think it, it, it really does mean a lot, you know, to again, buying beer, the first beer I bought after the pan. Well, I never really stopped buying beer. Let's be real. But, um, I was trying as much, as hard as I could to, to buy from uh, local breweries just for that, for that reason. But um, I mean, you know, here's another great example. I mean, we all do, I mean, when I say we, I, I suppose the, the craft beer industry, I mean, we all do collaborations to try to further build those linkages. I mean, Field and Vine here, 2020 with Wheatland Spring. I mean, this is, um, this is a, a close relationship with Walsh Family Wine. I mean, I think it's 0.7 miles down the road from Wheatland Spring. Um, and they have seen an uptick in wine drinkers coming to Wheatland Spring to drink their beer because this, they, you know, there is a symbiotic similarity uh, with this beer to what they're used to seeing. And it ties these vines within agriculture together um, to realize that they can overlap uh, and stand on their own and really unique, intricate, uh, you know, important ways. And I think this is how the whole canvas kind of gets, um, gets built together, you know? How do you, f yeah. how do you feel about like the, the wine market? Um, I don't know if I want to say like versus the, the craft beer market right now, because Virginia is like historically known for its wine, right? Like that's always been a Virginia thing. If I, am I, am I wrong in saying that? I feel like Virginia has been a wine Charlottesville. state. Yeah, Charlottesville for sure. Oh uh, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I, I think at the closest I've gotten to really understanding the 
the power of Virginia wine. I, I was recently appointed to the uh, Virginia Spirits Board, um, which in itself, you know, there's a Virginia wine board. There's a Virginia, um, you know, dairy board. I mean, there, there's all of these kind of sub industries are trying to figure out a way to sustainably and self-sufficiently market themselves to get people to pay attention to what is next door to them. Um, and so you, the, yeah, Virginia wine is a, is a powerful industry. I mean, they, and, and I mean powerful, not so much in their sway, but their, their ability to organize and really self-market themselves and group together in a way that they can convey kind of like a team, a team effort going forward and allows them to put themselves, you know, in the limelight where otherwise other, you know, general kind of, I, I call them kind of commodity level um, producers kind of bogart the marketing ad space and really are the ones that are always in our, in our eyeballs. Um, and to be able to really see that more often, I mean, I, I think it is a rep thing. Like you've got, you've got to have enough repetitions of being in front of people's faces for them to really bite into um, what you're selling and it be memorable and be something that they want to um, really kind of put in the back of their bucket list. Um, and so in that regard, uh, you know, I definitely Virginia Spirits um, has, I think, a, a fairly long way to go in, in bringing themselves kind of above board to the uh, the Kentucky, you know, the Kentucky bourbon yeah. pressure alone. Um, and so it's it, it's a it's a it's a tall mountain, I, I will say, and certainly figuring out how to fund that kind of stuff sustainably. I mean, typically, um, these are you know self tax yeah. type situations. This where, is like, the only one I can think of right now. Yeah, Catoctin Creek. I mean, these these guys are right down the road from Wheatland. Um, Bonnie, you guys have when's the uh, when's the Catoctin barrel aged? Uh, Thing come out the it's not, a, it's not a it's a it's not a mm -hmm. barley wine i think it might be a barley wine but i don't even know what he's talking about <laughs> <laughs> and just so the listeners know we're joined by really good though we're, we're joined by miss bonnie brandon hello hello bonnie but so i mean this is the thing i mean we we they they recently put a beer into katakin creek barrels to uh celebrate the neighborhood i mean quite literally um, and so this kind of stuff is what brings communities closer together in the fact that they have a, they have a, you're on video, you know, that, um, you know, that they have, that, you know, there, there is a, there's a quilt being sewn here and that they, you know, they recognize these brands, they recognize their products. And if they can find them in something else, this becomes something that people understand. Well, hopefully the the market, the wine market, you know, kind of bleeds over into craft beer. I know, uh, you know, having certainly that collaboration with Walsh and then, you know, I, I see Quattro Goombas on your website as well. I think a lot of people know them because they have both options, right? So I'm hoping that, you know, as that continues, it can, it can help to, you know, further push the craft beer 
market and and you know get more people interested. There's so much to it. There's so much that people don't know beyond just your typical domestic beers. You just got to try one, yeah. and then you start realizing that there's whole different flavor profiles that are just amazing. Um, yeah. It's sad. I, yeah, it really I was is. Just, I was just talking to my dad. My dad was, my parents were in town in town this weekend and uh, my dad, he doesn't drink anymore, but he was talking about, we were talking about bourbon and he was like, you know, it's funny back in my day, you know, he said that people would pick a, pick a whiskey or a bourbon and, they, and you stick to it. Like I'll never try anything else. And then, like, we live in a completely different world where it's like, dude, I don't even want to like, well, I do buy variety packs from time to time with the same brewery or whatever. But for the most part, I'm going and I'm like trying to build six packs. I'm trying to like just try everything that's out there Absolutely. just to see what see what we like. But, um, yeah, you know, and, and speaking to that collaboration you're talking about, like how much collaboration we were talking about this a little before we started record, recording, but how much collaboration and networking is there between suppliers like Maltsters, Hop Farmers, Yeast Labs? Um, I think you're familiar with the guys from Jasper Yeast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you guys get together often? I mean, you're hanging out right now at Wheatland's Wheatland Springs, right? Um, so how often do you guys get together and like collaborate and and talk about stuff like this? Yeah, I mean, I, I was with Jasper two or three weeks ago when we were um, we were up here doing a Loudon grown Loudon brewed collab at Wheatland Spring um, yeah. using all Loudon grown grain. We brought in some barley from a organic farmer here, Three Monkeys. Um, and then some some raw wheat. I, we included some raw wheat from Chris Van Black, um, and then also malted some of that wheat and brought it in. And Jasper provided the yeast, the yeast pitch to that. We used some um, some local grown hops, uh, whole leaf in the. Um, I believe we, uh, I believe we hop, we hop backed it with whole leaf. Um, cascade i believe um and nice. so i mean yeah i mean th these are the opportunities i mean we, they're typically driven by the producer so um you know when we it, it we depend on the producer to kind of look and try to put all of the pieces together i mean as much as um i would love to suggest different ideas number one typically the brewers are ahead of me already um and I mean, the Crooked Run, for instance, I mean, Brad and McKinnon come up with ideas that I would never have been able to come up with. Um, and so typically they're ahead of you. But then also, we, you know, you're, you're trying to pitch to seasons. You're, you're trying to pitch collabs to, to different styles that are, are selling well enough at the time to really get people not only interested but in what's in it, but that's something that they really like and would drive them towards the towards the brewery. And so I, I do love the fact that um, all of us are so close in the fact that we're all trying to achieve the same common goal of getting people to pay attention <laughs> a little bit more. Um, and then, you know, yeah, it would be one thing. I, I guess I could say that we could do a, you know, a side-by-side, -side, you know, American light lager with, um, you know, a, a, a raw malt and our malt and leave it up to the consumers to decide which is better. But um, not only is that insanely boring to me, uh, <laughs> but it's it's also kind of disingenuous to the agricultural cooperative here. I mean, there's way more work going into this stuff than just a single malt variety and some adjuncts and some yeast. I mean, I absolutely love 
I love American lagers. I mean, I love Pilsners. The, the comeback of lager to me is making me so happy because it, in that way, it's, it's allowing us to showcase our products by themselves. But at the same time, um, you get something here like the collab we're doing tomorrow with Black Narrows and Wheatland, uh, you know, land and waters. I mean, we are merging inland agriculture with Eastern shore nature and sea lettuce and, you know, raw, raw wheat here, their estate Pilsner malt, um, some oat malt that was grown, the oats, Brooks oats that were grown in Virginia. I mean, you can meld all this together. And this, this is our way of, of showcasing what is possible, not only out by the ocean, but also inland and how we can combine and put together this, you know, cool shipped, open fermented, punchin aged, briny madness that uh, I, I mean, I can't even wait. We haven't even brewed it yet. Yeah, let yeah. us know how we can acquire some of that because <laughs> how cool would it be for us to drink a beer that these people we've talked to have all had a hand in? Like that would be pretty dope. Yeah, it would. It definitely. Like it's that. gonna be. It's gonna be quite amazing. So, I feel like um, maybe we should talk a little bit more about malt now. So, um, <laughs> real quick, uh, looking at your website, we saw. Um, a lot of different malts uh, listed there, um, some interesting naming conventions that we don't really understand. So we just kind of wanted to real quick, if you could explain to us, like, what's the difference between like a Munich 9 and a Munich 15? Yeah, so that was our way to really differentiate between a light Munich and a dark Munich. To me, those were always very like ambiguous generalizations, which uh, while I can fully appreciate big malts ability to inoculate their nomenclature into a brewer's mind and really um you know so do you have a munich light it you know it's kind of one of these things of like i don't know what that means but yeah i guess so in a way munich 9 and munich 15 was our way and this is the same way with our crystal malts of showing specificity in the fact that like there's a there's a tight there's a there's a tight window of color spec within our light Munich, which is six to nine, and then our darker Munich is within you know thirteen to kind of seventeen Lova bond, and so we put numbers on it. I mean, it, number one, it kind of keeps us keeps us true to the brand um, and allows people to see to, to plug our stuff in to recipes that were already existing before we were. I mean, we're not beyond the concept of the fact that like people have existing recipes that they don't want to completely rewrite in an effort to use our malts, but at the same way, we want to stand aside and say, this is our riff on a Munich light. I mean, Munich nine is darker than a typical light Munich. Um, and it's also seasonal. I mean, in the summer, I will, easily make a munich nine that's got that that color and it's much much harder to make that same munich nine in the winter and so we have a colors a color spread of six to nine but when it's really getting down to three lova bond i mean that's kind of a rounding error in the um in the malt making world and so it celebrates the ability to uh, you know our desire to really dial this stuff in but then also celebrate the season the seasonality of these things and 
that, you know, humid air in summer is makes it really easy for me to color malt in the kiln where freezing cold, dry air in winter makes it really, really difficult to put color on, on malts. And so, um, that is really the, the main driver of those. I mean, in the end, we wanted two malt, two Munich malts. And so we picked, um, those, you know, color, color avenues. I mean, if I were to go a little bit lighter on the Munich, I'd kind of start to well meld into our Vienna malt, which is a four to five Lova bond. And so, you know, it, it in our malt house, the, the saying goes, everything has to stand on the rack on its own. And so if, if you can't, if the malts can't be different on their own, they don't get any rack space. <laughs> and so uh, this is our way of, of making sure Munich light and Munich dark or Munich nine and 15 stick around. Okay, cool. Yeah, that definitely awesome. helps. I think this is our next question is probably a good one to have Bonnie sitting there with you. So um, we wanted to ask you, your process for creating a new malt it's this is this is kind of for both of you right so the process for creating a new malt is it is it a push or is it a pull from the brewer right does it start with an idea that you have or does the brewer come to you and say hey we're trying to do something new how can you help us you think so you want to answer <laughs> 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 you want me to answer it's both okay now you can just like point the microphone like in between you guys or like <laughs> does it bend no it doesn't bend don't break it <laughs> don't break the mic <laughs> yeah 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 yes 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 yeah okay um, so welcome to the show bonnie welcome to the show you. welcome i feel so famous right now um so as jess may have said he has a full panel of us right in front of him drinking enjoying the show with him so no pressure thanks for having us um so my super quick answer to your question is i think it is definitely two-way i think sometimes that um we have a crazy idea that we might present to jeff or a maltster saying you know is this possible and see what he has to say about it um or there's times when jeff says hey i have this really cool new malt um what do you think you can do with it and then we create a beer from there. So um, I think it's definitely two-way, and that's my my take. <laughs> this, is, this is a good this is a good example. Cool. So like we made a um, we made a special one-of-a-kind drum roasted kind of Caramunic style malt for Wheatland last year off of their estate grain um, because we, you know, I had been toying with a Caramunic style. I had always wanted to do it and the, the production schedule had never really allowed for it. And so we, we finally had a chance to, to weasel it in um, and came up with our caramel 55, which is our, you know, caramel melanoidin, get it caramel kind of caramunic style ish, but it's very dark, but it's, it's rich and um, it's got tons of, of, of depth of flavor. Um, and, Austin really liked it. And he's like, Hey, can you side stream some of our estate contracted malt to this kind of like care of Munich style stuff? And I said, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And so we, we treated it the same way. Um, there, uh, you know, but that, that grain was grown on their farm versus, versus the, the grain we were pulling from the Northern neck at the time. And so um, it's 10 Lovabond, a little darker. He wanted a little bit more 
kind of ruby color to it. And so we were, we were able to darken it up a little bit. Um, and I just, I mean, I just tasted a little, he's got just a little bit left in a, in a bag here. I mean, it's still just a really banging specialty malt and the small scale that we can offer allows us to do that kind of stuff. I mean, you can't do that at a major malt house that's running, you know, Oh my God, like, you know, four ton drum roaster batches. Um, you know, I'm, I can squeeze out and kind of an experimental batch at 150 pounds. We, our drum roaster max is out at 400 pounds. And so it's, it's running often, but it allows us number one to experiment. Number two, make mistakes, which is a prerequisite of experimentation. <laughs> and so we screw up all the time. Um, but then there's also things that we experiment. It landed kind of how we wanted to, and maybe the market didn't respond to it. We opened the Sumerian line earlier today, which is kind of our like Carafa black malt line, um, because we had started in a, we contracted some holus barley, which is essentially naturally debittered barley grain that we can roast and remove a lot of that astringency and bitterness. Um, I mean, I kind of call it Mother Nature's food coloring, Sumerian black. Um, Where does so that we, come from? What is the Sumerian black? Yeah, because I, I read up beforehand that Sumerian was like an ancient culture back in like ancient Greek mythology, like, you know, long time yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. So they, they lived in they lived in a land of of, of fog and darkness. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Essentially, they never saw the sun. And so I thought it was a great name for a um, for a, a black malt line. Uh, what we came to find out is that and, you know, we probably knew this going in, but Carafa malts are kind of a palate topper. When you're ordering from BSG or CMG, you're like, ah, I'm four bags short on my skid order. I want to get as many bags of malt in on my $150 flat rate shipping. Just throw four bags of Carafa on there. I'll use it eventually. And so, no, like from a small guy, it was not the best business move to offer the palate topper as a um, entirely separate line of, of malts. But... Uh, what it did give birth to is a rethinking debittered malts. And so we have, and again, Virginia Tech in their small grain program and their breeding, they had been breeding a Hollis barley, multiple different varieties um, that originally were going to go as feed grain. And the, um, the, you know, the poultry industry didn't really pick up on it as much. And I've, found value in that and the fact that rather than bringing in you know standard two-row barley and mechanically purling it or debittering it or removing the hull uh let's just let mother nature take care of it and i get de-hulled barley in a two-ton bag we malt it and then we roast it and we have our uh debittered line but now that we've learned that black malts are not the best movers. What about maybe like a debittered brown malt or a debittered amber malt or a debittered standard like chocolate malt, which are currently not commercially available. I mean, we have two house roasts within our malt house, uh, Blonde Rye, which is a essentially our version of a chocolate rye, but much, much, much lighter uh, at roughly 60 Lova Bond. And it it's actually just kind of amplifies the rye pepper, you know, kind of capsaicin run of 
of rye where you get kind of that spicy flavor note of rye. And at that drum roaster at that lower color spec really kind of microphones that rye as opposed to just chasing a chocolate malt color spec. And, you know, I've always thought like, what's the point of chocolate rye that not taste like rye? Um, so, I mean, there's five other chocolate malts you could source. I mean, what, why bother? And so we decided to, that that had value. And we, we really do think it does. It's great in Baltic porters, an awesome edge, like, you know, small grain bill addition to like an a Irish red um, and alt beers, uh, uh, stouts. I mean, it's, it's endless. But then we also have a, it's called Belgian Amber. I've never liked Amber malt. <laughs> it's not popular for a reason. It honestly doesn't really taste that great. But I decided one day that what if we tried to produce an Amber malt off of like a melanoidin forward standard malt, like a Vienna or a Munich. And so I put Vienna in the roaster and roasted it to an amber spec and everything changed. I mean, it was no longer your quintessential amber malt, but it was really like a dark aromatic. Like it really played well for like Belgian strongs or anywhere where you're like spicing a beer, but you need a malt backbone to remain present. Um, it stands up, but it also gets out of the way. So it's still there, but it doesn't overpower. Um, and so we, those are very unique to us. They're not commercially available. They are um, something that we make and we formulate it on our own. And so I'm kind of taking that line with the Sumerian line of going like, let's rethink debittered malts. Like it doesn't just have to be nature's food coloring. It can be a new expression of on a malt that already exists, like a brown malt or an amber malt. I mean, biscuit, yeah, man, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, biscuit malts are great and our biscuit malt is is phenomenal. So I think there are places that don't need to be touched and that do need to be kind of examined, but um, that's what we do. And so to answer your question around like, is it a, is it market driven or is it my kind of my own creativity? I look for opportunities to offer something that perhaps off that, that gives you the best of different worlds. And so a lot of people love brown malts for their historical relevance or the fact that, you know, like diastatic brown malt, which is really just malt that was accidentally lit on fire back in the 1800s. Um, you know, that is nostalgic for people, but then, I mean, brown malt like doesn't taste that great. <laughs> I can only like in in a beer it is glorious and I love it, but as a maltster roasting brown malt and tasting it, it's acidic, it's a bit acrid, it's um it doesn't have much of its own personality. And so I that's where I looked at going, I think what's a lot a lot of what's in the way here is the husk. Right? And so if we strip that away and get down to the center of what that malt is i think we can really bring it out in a debittered version and so we will see i haven't done it yet but i'm about to find out okay cool <laughs> yeah i feel like um like you said being is being on, on you know a, a smaller operation you can you can have that trial and error absolutely yep and uh you know one of the things we were curious about is like with that what can go wrong i mean because yeah. With the machinery that you have and your in your setup and things like that, you have to do a certain amount, right? Because you can't just 
throw a handful in and see what happens. You're absolutely right. So what's the worst that can happen? Can you just completely ruin an entire batch and you just have to toss it? Uh, so it, it's it's usually overdoing it. So, I mean, in the end, we can still try to – we can underdo things and still finish them off and be – and dial ourselves in. That's not what we would necessarily release. We would say, okay, we need to adjust our schedule to hit these particular color specs. Because in the end, like, yes, we do care – about color because people are dependent on us to be able to punch this into a recipe and actually come out with some discernible color contribution to a style. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that um, going under and then having to like, you know, tap it off on the roaster a little bit longer to get us to the color that we were looking at um, is not possible. That said, I would, I rarely sell that. That's more of like a learning experience for me. It's not ruined, but it's not, I take that as, okay, here's the schedule that I need to, to implement. How can I get to the same endpoint, but then play with it a little bit on the way up to it. And so that's where we play with, you know, ramp times. So we, or ramp rates. So ramp times, like get to a certain temperature over an hour or ramp rates, you know, go five degrees every two minutes. And so we can play around with that kind of stuff. And in our drum roasting program, we play a lot with, because we don't have sprayers in our, in our drum roaster. And so it's kind of like a handicap, except it taught me a lot of patience, like layering flavors on, bringing the drum up to heat, letting it color, letting it cool down. It's kind of the same way how you season in between ads and a saute pan. You're kind of just layering flavor on um if you have that same mindset it can be applied with heat in a drum roasting program and so that's where we are there blonde rye total accident i mean i was going for chocolate rye uh to see what you know what it took and i pulled that stuff out of the drum roaster and i'm like well this is too light uh so i guess we got to adjust the schedule and then i tasted it and it was amazing. Uh, I was happy with Jeff- accident. Yeah, it's like I Bob mean, Ross, happy yeah. accident. Happy I mean, accidents. I was, <laughs> I was with Jeff Shawland at uh, Deschutes, who was down at down in Roanoke, the, the small little pilot tap room. All there, um, I still hope building out their major production brewery. But um, and I mean, he witnessed the success of an experimentation. I mean, I reached into the drum and I was like, "Well, this isn't right," and tasted it and said, "I am not." doing one more thing to this, like dump it out and bag it. And then we did a bunch of sensory tests and um, I mean, it's just an amazing malt. And I mean, here's, here's to the point, nobody knows what the hell to do with it because nobody has a blonde rye in the Beersmith recipe catalog. And so everyone's (laughs) like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Which, Which is where then the education and the marketing side comes along and where I need to really place this within, you know, I just need to lead a brewer to water in this regard. Um, and then they can take it from there. I mean, you talk to Austin Khan here. I mean, I told him I, I adjusted my pale kiln schedule just a little bit. Like we're free drying at a slightly higher percentage. He's like, okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm like, (laughs) you know, is it, is it, you know, is it, darker color is it you know melanoid development like just depth of flavor like it just made our pale stronger and he said okay and so you kind of get these 
languages that everybody understands where they can, you know, everybody's got a recipe in their mind already. Someone's just got to kind of say the right words to, to perk your interest. Nice. So you could definitely tell the passion here, like, you know, um, the experimentation that you're doing just sounds fantastic. You guys are just coming up with, with all kinds of new stuff and, you know, something like that. You're just like, Hey, I got this here, you know, who wants to take this and do something with it and let's see what you can do. Right. And, and, you know, so that's, that's really cool in a, you know, love to hear, you know, that you guys are experimenting with malt and not taking the shortcut using extracts, you know, you know, having, I'm sorry. It's, it's good to have brewers coming to you for the malt and them not taking shortcuts and going with extracts. They're coming to you and saying, hey, you know, what kind of crazy flavor pro- profiles can we come up with w- with your malt? And, you know, on that, uh, we did talk to Sebastian from Epiphany Craft uh, Malt, and he touched on a uh, cold steeping process that home brewers can use with whole grain malt, which is something that can't be done with extract. Um we were just kind of hoping, because uh, we weren't able to elaborate, you know, get elaboration from him on that. So can you help us to understand that a little bit more? Sure. So, it, I mean, I think typically cold steeping is a, you know, I think it's mostly used at the homebrew level. It's it's a great way to essentially reduce the astringency contribution of really, really dark malts. Um, so if you can, you know, I don't think you necessarily need to leave them whole. I mean, you, I think you could still mill them i mean i've done both and um i've had brewers ask me if our baker's cocoa which is our our dark chocolate really needs to be milled and i'm like yeah you should mill it i mean in the end maybe not but i wouldn't i mean you might be leaving something behind would be my only reservation there and so um they're very friable malts so they they break apart very easily and into very you know fine parts and so adding that to hot water can typically, uh, you know, act on the, so there's pyrazines and pyridines, which are chemicals uh, in the chemical reactions in the late staging of dry roasting, which really is uh, the main contributor to what people perceive as bitterness in a dark malt. So like a dark lager, if you're picking up any any astringency, those are typically pyrazines and pyridines. But um, so those wake up with heat. And so if you can reduce the carryover of astringency and tannins um, in much the same way as brewers, certainly at the, at the commercial production level, they typically stop runoff in their mash tun. So at post lauder during their laudering, they stop their runoff at about two Play-Doh. Cause at that point you're just essentially like, it's like, light sugar water, but you're just bringing a bunch of husk tannins over. And so you're better off just cutting your runoff off and topping it off with, with water in the, in the, um, in the boil kettle. But, uh, with cold steeping, what you can essentially do is just, it's, it's the same way as many people make like sweet tea. You just, you drop it in cold water and you let it just steep out and remove the color and flavor components of that in non-heat applications. And so you're getting mainly what you're looking for. Roast, you know, what, what we would call roastiness, which is really, um, you know, the coffee, espresso, dark chocolate kind of um, kind of flavor, you know, maybe some char, a little like charred marshmallow or something like that. Um, you're bringing that over. You're certainly bringing the color over, um, but you're leaving all of that husk 
bitterness and astringency and tannic influence back. And so it allows you to really dampen down the unwanted and dark and dark roasts. And it's super effective. I mean, yeah, do I, I don't think it's really effective in a, in a major commercial brewery setup. Um, I mean, <laughs> cereal mashing is hard enough. Uh, I mean, this, the, the commercial brewers have enough bullshit to deal with that um, cold steeping, I, I think, is a, is a pass. And, um, you know, not to mention debittered, but I mean, that's where debittered malts come in. I mean, you're removing that husk material. Um, and so that, that, no, it's, it's, that's absolutely an effective thing. And I encourage people to do it. It takes a little bit of advanced, you know, prep time, kind of like seasoning your pork shoulder before you put it on the smoker the next morning. But other than that, <laughs> uh, I mean, Hey, go for it. Nice. Good analogy. Cool. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Got it. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I appreciate you explaining that to us for sure. And uh, we're getting kind of close to the hour here. It's hard to believe, but um, I think Reese and I, I, I kind of wish we were in the room. Cause I'm like, dude, we could just have some beers and like talk this all night. And uh, it, we just love learning about this stuff. But um, you know, for someone like myself, I've, when I got into craft beers, I'm like, I hated IPAs. I started with like the Pilsners and worked into, you know, some of the loggers and things like that. And now I'm like all in IPAs. I'm like all IPAs all the time, but I've gotten more into the stouts and porters. And and this year I'm looking more into like the Belgians and things like that. So for someone like myself who wants to know, cause, cause we've heard it say, said before that it's either yeast or, or, um, barley are the most under, or sorry, malts are the most underappreciated ingredients in brewing, right? Like everybody talks about the hops, Mm -hmm. but you know, if somebody wants to get more familiar with malts and their impact on the flavor of beer, like, is there something you would recommend that they would try? And like, like if I want to go to the store and try something that I can pay attention to and like, you know, really pull out that malt flavor as opposed to being overpowered with hops, is there a specific style that you would recommend? Um, I would say a Munich Dunkel, which is my favorite all-time style. I mean, I believe Einger makes the Einger makes by far the best Dunkel on earth. Um, I think it's, but it, you know, I don't want to say you know anti-hop here. I mean, I think a, a, a really important part of malt is being able to work alongside of. Um, a bittering and aromatic contribution to, to brewing. And so, um, you know, an Italian Pilsner, for instance, like, you know, you get the dry hop aromatics of it, but you get the, um, you know, you get the terroir kind of like of the earth play of the malt. Um, oh man, I wish Austin was up here. He would go berserk. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I would say something like, uh, a Hellas or, you know, a German, a German lager that is really, you know, decoction mashed that is expressive of the, what malt is capable of, but then malt that is treated to an additional degree. I mean, decoction right now, people say, oh, it's not necessary. You know, malt is much more modified now. Decoction was essentially made up to you know, continue what the maltster was supposed to do after <laughs> the maltster was done with it. So decoction mashing is essentially like an extension of malting. But I, I mean, I find a brewer with a decoction system 
and I just completely fanboy over the fact that you can derive like additional Maillard reactions that really build up flavor and color and um, and potential of, of malts that so anywhere where someone is treating malt uh, more than they necessarily need to let's put it that way so um, you know anyone who is uh, using any like alternative grains for instance like a spelt or a, like a triticale or um, uh, buckwheat you know certain things like that that they're grain focused so you can you can you know that they are paying attention to that sort of thing um, but I mean I think in terms of stylistically understanding malt it can be anything from a you, you can understand <laughs> you can understand from an american like that there it is for the for the people in their cars listening right now bonnie is displaying a bag of murphy and rude malts <laughs> we just got she our carry that instagram she carried that all the way up yeah she carried that all the way up just for the show that's oh, awesome oh, oh no it's already up here guys oh it's up there okay so we, we have the <laughs> nice the bags that bonnie are in the way of the cool ship or, or what we call what we call the brownie pan, which is nice, which is really a cool ship. But, you know, perhaps where somebody would make a brownie to put in their imperial pastry stout. I don't know. Uh, but it is, you know, this is the, the true the true effect. I mean, they've got um, loud and grown hops hanging from the rafters here. I mean, this is like, oh, man, this is like lambic country waiting to happen. Um but uh, I, I mean, I think even from the, like the simplicity of like an American light lager to understand that uh, there are different expressions of malt depending on who's doing it. Like Budweiser is not the only one who knows how to make American light lager now. So yeah. you can get so many riffs on a on a malt bill based on how they mash it, how the, you know, how much corn they use. Um, it, it's any, anything from that to a brown ale to me, like it's where I cut my teeth in craft beer. Um, I think brown ale is a, um, it was popular for a reason. And so it's kind of fallen out of fashion because I don't know, I guess people think brown's an ugly color, but I, I think it is a <laughs> beautiful expression of, and, and, a, and a style that can also be done in a myriad different ways. And so, um, you know, you can use, a little bit of darker malts or a lot more, you know, lighter roasted brown malts or, or any combination of, of the two, um, anywhere up to like the Munich German Bavarian style beer where they really truly appreciate, um, what malt is able to contribute. I'd say, I'd say go there. Nice. So yeah, Newcastle Brown Ale, throw that one in there and then you name it. Other no, than that. San, no, Sammy Smith's nut brown ale. Okay, yeah. Sammy Smith's nut brown. <laughs> Got it. That's that was the first one. So full suit. What about like a quad, like a like a Trappist quad? Is that is that too much? Is that something that's like more um, advanced? I guess you wouldn't no, want to try that. No, I mean I, I would certainly go there. I mean I think what that that style is complicated in the fact. I mean you're you're playing with Belgian candy sugar. You're playing with Belgian yeast that are you know throwing kind of esters in your face that can get I think that's perhaps a um like a graduate level style in the realm of 
focusing on the malt profile, so to speak. And so, I mean, I think those styles are, you can appreciate in so many different ways and for so many different reasons, I wouldn't necessarily point people to a, to that as a, as a style for malt, not to say that it is not imperative. It's just the fact that it can get a little busy and noisy, if you know what I mean. Got it. Yeah. Very complex. Got it. All right. Um, so we saw in one of your videos that in uh, 2018, you sold over 63 tons of malt, which is uh, like, it sounds really, really crazy, honestly. So for a local brewery that is supplying their tap room and also has regional distribution, how much malt is is required? Oh man, this, this, this gets down to a numbers game, which is an impossible to do this. So if, if you were to essentially factor in a hundred pounds of malt per barrel on bigger, bigger ABV. So we're going to, we're getting more into like sessionable stuff now, but if you were to ask me this five years ago, I would say 150 pounds per barrel. Uh, if you take that to your brewery's annual production. So, I mean, you can never determine, I mean, they could have a certain size brew house yeah, right. with, you know, a bazillion fermenters or a small malt house or a big brew house with two fermenters. I mean, the barrelage annual would be completely different. But so if you just do the 100, 100, 100 pounds per barrel calculation, you'll get there. Um, I, I will say this. So we are in the midst of right, right now we're approaching about 150 malt tons a year. We're, we're going to expand here um, much needed um, and potentially quadruple our capacity to almost 400 tons, malt tons per year. So there's a 20% weight loss between 100 pounds of raw grain going in the steep tank is 80 pounds of malt coming out of the kiln. Um, so, you know, we're going to get close to 400 malt tons a year. Um, Vireman malts that in a single batch. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So, crap. I mean, you have to think about the standpoint of it takes me two. it would right now, it would take me more than two years to produce what a multinational malting company makes in one week. Whoa. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And That's so, we're, I mean, these are, this is where economy of scale comes in and then, the issue of like, why is your malt not, you know, 32 cents a pound in my silo, like, <laughs> like Canada malting is, well, I buy my grain for 25 cents a pound. Right. And so, you know, we're, we're paying bushel prices to our farmers that are twice as much, if not more than what uh, major malt houses are doing, which is like the last thing I'm going to do is negotiate with my grain grower. And I am, that is the, a inconsequential cost of goods sold component. I mean, it, this is really major, mainly utilities and labor. Um, grain cost is not what is crushing us here. But if you think about the fact of like spreading, a, you know, your daily costs over, you know, five tons versus 400 tons. Uh, I mean, I don't need to do the math for you, but Right. Needless to say that you are much more price competitive. And so for what's hardest for us is the fact that we are essentially in a commodity market and we are the flour in your chocolate chip cookies. What's going to make you change the flour as opposed to the chocolate chips or any other input into your 
chocolate chip cookies. And so um, the only way you can really do that is number one, for me to make really good malts and then for you to try them. And yeah. then you just decide which one you like more. And then in the end, if you like the cookies more with my malt, um, you know, don't look now, but like we're talking maybe like, I don't know, 20 cents a pint. So, I mean, I don't know, raise, raise your price 50 cents and keep a quarter, you know, yeah. like th this argument's beyond me in terms of, I, I really realize that beer is a margin business, but in a world where we're spending 50 pounds, $50 per pound on citra hops. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not necessarily that the money's not there. I think that the market needs to pay attention and, uh, malt needs to be a priority. I mean, it, the, yeah. that's the fact of the matter. I mean, and yes, I believe a customer of mine in a previous episode by the name of Kevin McElroy from Random Row <laughs> said, I don't think, I hope my local maltster doesn't hear this, but malt is malt is malt. And I would say it is 100% oh. not. And oh no. And, and Kevin, don't look now. See, I did my homework, fellas. Like, I, I, Shots I, I, fired. Listen, I, listen to, I listen to podcasts before I do them. And I will say to Kevin, I think you know deep down in your dreams that they're not the same. Um, and, and I appreciate you regardless. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i That's feel a awesome. joint episode coming on oh yeah well that dovetails perfectly into that any last thing we wanted to ask you about before we close this out and we just again appreciate your time coming on and, and hanging out with us and for bringing your friends man this has been so fun but um on your website it's uh you have this thing called mill fresh yeah. and i'm curious if this is a term that you've coined yourself or if it's something that's you know widely regarded but essentially it talks about what you just said where it's you know, why choose local freshly produced malts over something you can get cheaper that happens to ship from across the country or from a different country or whatever. So can you just give us some insight into that and then we'll close this out? Yeah, no, I mean, it is, it is the a term coined by us. I mean, this is COVID central, um, you know, we need to really amplify our message here. And I work really closely with Emily Hutto of Radcraft um out in Colorado and she's just a PR marketing mastermind and um I had come to her um we were going to put some ads in um craft beer and brewing we had we had been awarded one of their post covid um grants for ad space in their in their magazine and um we had won one of the big bigger awards and I I'd been sitting on this mill fresh concept uh, for ages and I just didn't really know how to pull the trigger and when I won that award I called Emily and I said I have this idea um, there's nobody else on this planet that could deliver it better than you and I think we finally have a platform to do it and so we launched Mill Fresh and you know one of the taglines on Mill Fresh is choose the malt less traveled and that is Emily Hutto at her essence um, really coming through messaging wise of saying, we're not, this is a campaign around conscious sourcing. And I'm not saying conscious sourcing around like, you know, the humane, the humane treatment of, you know, in coffee and in chocolate, where you're dealing with like human rights issues. We're talking about non-robotic 
non, you know, this automatic kind of habitual ordering that craft beer is doing because, you know, malt's that thing that just like goes into beer and like makes the fermentable sugars. And like, that's like the big thing is, do we get to go to hop selection this year? And, and it's kind of this like auto robot reorder on BSG or CMG. Um, and we need to get everyone away from this unthoughtful way of ordering like the second highest volume ingredient next to water in your beer should not be an auto reorder on your supplier account. And so we wanted people to, Mill Fresh is a way of us asking industry, asking consumers, asking anybody out there, just do you think you are taking advantage of the freshest ingredients? Whether you're a brewer, are you ordering the freshest ingredients? Do you not like your malt supplier and just don't want to quit them? I mean, Vinny from Russian River put a Instagram post out with, he's building a walkway with all of the stones he's pulled out of his base malt suppliers, malt bags. He had to buy an entire destoner to get, to get all these rocks. I mean, this is a major problem. Like I would, I would, he should have kicked this malt supplier to the curb years ago, but it's really thinking about, do, do you like what you're using? Is it the freshest that you could possibly have? And I'm not necessarily saying, is your base malt, you know, three weeks to eight weeks old? We're not putting a time stamp on this stuff. It is more about, number one, how far did this stuff travel? How long has it been on its way to you? And how much closer could you have sourced it so that you are capturing the essence of what this product was made to deliver. And so that's what Mill Fresh really is, is a campaign around conscious sourcing. Ask, you know, look at, you know, breweries these days are putting malt bags all around their mill. I mean, if you're seeing the same, you know, European, God, I mean, there's malts coming in from halfway around the world at this point, um, is that, why let's just say, just ask right. why and so right. um it doesn't need to travel that far anymore and it is also a question around are you supporting the supply chain around you in a way that's also going to make your beer better yep yeah perfect dude let us let us know how we can get involved man like we're we're here for it i mean uh yeah, we yeah. frequent our local breweries all the time. So let us know how we can support. Well, I mean, here, here's two quick ways. Number one, from a homebrew perspective, um, eight out of 10 homebrew shops are going to say my homebrewer doesn't give a rats about uh, local malt. So I can prove in numbers that fifth season locally in Charlottesville, all our homebrewers do. I mean, we, they can't stay stocked. Um and so when you go to your homebrew shop, uh, make your desire known. Yes, you're going to pay more, but um, again, not going to matter uh, from a from a per ounce standpoint. Um, it's a hobby. Let's focus on the things that are important here. Second of all, um, pay attention to menus. I mean, you come out here to Wheatland Spring. I mean, my face is on the can <laughs> for, for, Black, <laughs> for Black Narrows um scotch ale i mean these guys really not only do they use it but they make it known so if, if you are not if they're 
if your brewery is only listing the hops, ask them about the malts and ask, you know, ask them about their, their full ingredient perspective and their like their philosophy around sourcing. And if you don't like it, go to, till someone find someone that you, that you do like. And, you know, there's so many breweries now, Boston beer started this, they put caramel malt on their, on their freaking bottleneck label, um, with Boston beer. And so, or excuse me, with, um, with their standard, um, Boston lager. And so, you know, Vossen, things, you know, places like this that are listing what malts they use, what hops they use, what yeast they use, like this is the stuff that matters. They're, they're making a concerted effort to put this stuff on these labels, pay attention to it, let them know you appreciate it. And the ones that aren't say, Hey, I'm paying attention. Yeah. It's like credits at the end of a movie. Give you respect, you know? Absolutely. So that's awesome. Um, so we're going to wrap this up. We just want to know real quick, you know, um, you've, you've mentioned a, a couple collaborations and you kind of like given us your, your what, what the future is going to be. Growth really is in the future. What's on the horizon besides that for Murphy and Rude? Any big other, any other big projects or anything you want to shout out before we close this out? Man, we are just working, uh, and I got to say to anybody <laughs> that's listening to this that uses our malts, I mean, you know, we are back ordered fairly significantly right now. Um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of out of stocks. We are doing our absolute best. I mean, in the end, yes, I probably make too many malts, but I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> we also opened as a specialty malt house, so I, would, <laughs> I had underestimated the attraction to our base malts, but you know, craft malt does not have, it's not necessarily a percentage game. You know, it doesn't, even if you use it at like 5% of your grist build, doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And so if you can integrate, you know, we built our malt house for you to be able to weave us in whatever, how, however it mess, best meets your business goals and your, you know, your financials and your need to, you know, hit your margins and, and, and make money. I mean, breweries are no good to a maltster if they're not in business. And so we absolutely understand that philosophy, but, you know, we built our malt house to be highly capable and build a diverse portfolio of malts. And so use us where it makes the most sense, not just to get, you know, a hundred percent this, or, you know, a specialty release this one time a year, um, you know, moving all of your specialty malts to us, for instance, would be a massive help, um, you know, three notched here locally and well, locally at home in Charlottesville that moved all of their specialty malts to us and all of their flagships, you know, major distribution, you know, everything from no veto brown ale to biggie s'mores. I mean, it's oh, just, I love it. Yeah. It's just amazing. I mean, those are all of our chocolate malts. And so they're, um, they're coming to Virginia beach too. Yeah. Can't wait. Absolutely. This Abs summer. Absolutely. And so, I mean, these are major, major breweries. I mean, Hardywood included, like, major breweries also stepping up. And so like, this is not a like, oh, this is for the little guys and the niche breweries. Um, and so I, I think capacity for us is a major, a major issue. We started small, we started modestly. We, this is always in the plan. This is awesome news that we can act on the plan. Um, just be patient, <laughs> cool. hang, hang with us. It won't be, it won't be much longer. And then well, also, that's all and awesome. then also, if anybody owes me money, you can uh, just yeah, find my number. <laughs> just go ahead, go ahead and tell them you're just put out, put your Venmo out there. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, definitely send them. <laughs> yeah. Send it Cash App. You know. Yeah, you can put it in, put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So uh, this has been super great. Uh, thank you so much. Um, so just in closing, guys. Murphy and Rude Malting is your hand-in-glove supplier of fresher, more flavorful ingredients closer to home. Make sure to go check them out. If you want to learn more about Murphy and Rude Malting, check them out at murphyrudemalting.com or on Instagram at murphyrudemalting. That's it. We'll see you guys later. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks, we really, Jeff. really appreciate it. Yeah, this couldn't be more fun. Thanks, guys. Awesome. See you guys. Peace.